Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Life is not easy for any of us, or what of that. We must have perseverance and above all confidence in ourselves. We must believe that we are gifted for something and that this thing must be attained. This quote was from Marie Curie, the renowned Polish-French physicist and chemist who was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize and the first person and only woman to win twice. Our guest today is one of those rare executives, like Madame Curie, who was successful in multiple disciplines across industry sectors, whose words of advice in this podcast are to expect success. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to the elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. This episode with Catherine Fagg is inspiring and brings forth a perspective of an individual who has been prepared to follow the road less traveled, an experienced chair and board member who has worked in senior executive roles across a range of industries, from resources to manufacturing, to logistics to banking, and from listed to private, and from Australia to India. Catherine is chairman of Borrow Limited and is on the boards of listed companies Incitec Pivot, Digeroa Investments, as well as the CSIRO. She was previously a member of the board of the Reserve Bank of Australia. In not-for-profit, Catherine is chairman of the Breast Cancer Network Australia, a board member of the Grattan Institute, the Meyer Foundation, and the Male Champions of Change. She is the immediate past president of Chief Executive Women and former board member of the Australian Centre for Innovation. In our discussion, we cover what is leadership, what is diversity, and where is business headed, and being prepared to take risk. So sit back and enjoy this highly topical and wide-ranging conversation, Expect Success, with Catherine Fagg. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Looking forward to it. What an interesting background and very career you've had. Can you talk us through some of your career steps and why you changed your career so many times in the different sectors you've worked across? From my recollection, didn't you start out as a petroleum engineer? I did. So I'm originally from regional Queensland, and when I was thinking about what I would do at university, I was very uncertain. I think I actually changed three times and changed the last time at the end of orientation week to engineering, which at the time was a very unusual choice for a girl to take. I think there were six girls from over 200 engineering students. But in fact, my profile was fairly typical of girls who do engineering. Uh, I love problem solving and I'm comfortable with maths, as you can imagine. And I also want to make a difference. And if you actually talk to girls who do engineering, that's pretty typical. 
problem solving and making a difference. There's, but how many did you say there was only six doing it at that period of time? Is that because there was a lack of encouragement during your schooling to consider that type of career profession? It's an interesting question. It just wasn't even on the radar screen. It just wasn't assumed you would do that. And in fact, I was unusual among the girls who did engineering in the fact that my father wasn't an engineer, whereas a number of the other girls who had fathers who were engineers. But I did have a very dear friend whose father was an engineer. So I'd been exposed to the profession and I lived in an industrial town. So engineers were really important in our town and were well known. And did it live up to your expectations when you commenced your career? Oh, I still think if you want to do serious problem solving, there's nothing like engineering as an undergraduate degree. And when you left university, you went to, was it ESSO? It was ESSO, which is now part of ExxonMobil, and worked as a petroleum engineer and was involved in optimising oil and gas production out of Bass Strait on a helicopter pretty well every week out there to visit the fields that I was responsible for. So it was sort of a girl's own adventure as a brand new graduate. Girl's own adventure, but in a man's world in those days. It was very much a man's world. Well, in fact, I think I was nearly always, except on one occasion, the only female on the platform with a group of men. So how do you get respect? You get respect, and I don't think it matters which situation you're in, you get respect by, first of all, being respectful to other people And then also being respectful to the work you were doing and treating it seriously and very respectful to the organisation. And I don't think that matters whether you're talking about being different because of gender in Australia or if you're going into another country, say in Asia, how do you gain respect? And it's all about being respectful to people but also to the situation and the organisation. And I guess in reciprocating that respect, we also reciprocated the opportunities. Whether I reciprocated opportunities, one of the great joys in my life has been doing a lot in Asia. And for anyone who has done a lot in Asia, I think we all have the experience of people being desperate to learn and really wanting to grab opportunities. That is so exciting to be in an environment like that and working to create opportunities for people. What made you make the move away from engineering? So this is the beginning of these number of different careers you pursued. So even though I adore problem solving and I still adore problem solving, I became aware that I did not want to be a technical engineer. In fact, I love working with people and I'm fascinated by the way organizations work. So it's sort of, it's still system thinking, which is what engineers are famous for, but it's more about people systems. And while I was working at ESSO, I started a part-time master's degree in of commerce in organization behavior at Uni of New South Wales. And that was a revelation to me and I just loved it. And so it was therefore the decision to move away from being a technical engineer, which I did at the six-year mark. But by that time, I'd had really good experience and had had the joy of leading development of world-first technology, which was meant I'd really kind of experienced being an engineer. And that's when I moved across to McKinsey, the management consultants. And what were the problem-solving you were exposed to at McKinsey, the sort of the clientele you're asked to, to cover? I think most people at McKinsey are problem-solving junkies and I definitely fitted into that category. And the clients I worked with tended to be either in the resource sector in particular and it was tended to be strategy work there and then in financial services sector where the focus was very much on change management. So both my engineering degree and organisational behaviour degree both played into what I did at McKinsey. And did you get tired of the consulting? Is that what led you to make the move to go to take a um, a hands-on role as opposed to the advisory? 
Oh, it was very interesting. In fact, before I left ESO, a couple of people who I admire enormously said to me, this will be a good move for you, but make sure that you don't aspire to be a consultant for the rest of your life. And for me, that was really good advice because I actually realized that even though I enjoyed, adored actually being at McKinsey and doing the problem solving, I really wanted to have a go myself. And rather than suggesting to other people what they should do, I wanted to test myself and see if I could do it because I think we all know it's much harder to do it ourselves and to suggest to someone else how they should do it. Big step, moving to banking. ANZ was a client. When I was at McKinsey, I was working on ANZ work, so they knew me very well. And in fact, it was a former McKinsey person who'd moved to the ANZ who really reached out to me. Very importantly, when I spoke with ANZ and they were offering me a number of project roles, which were very interesting roles, but I said that even though I'd be happy to start in a project role, I really wanted to run a business. And I had that discussion all the way up to the CEO of ANZ. And at this point, I'm like 32, I think. And everybody said if it went, including the CEO, that if it went well for the first couple of years, they would look to create the opportunity for me to move into a line role and to run a business. And at the two-year mark, ANZ absolutely delivered on that and said, we know we promised we would do this for you. If it worked out well on the project role, it's worked out well. And here's the opportunity for you to move into a line role. And the project role being strategy? So the entry point or or change management or? Kind of applied strategy. So the big difference was with a project role, I had deliverables. In fact, I was very focused on improving customer satisfaction. And people who've been around a little longer might remember that ANZ actually introduced a guarantee on wait times in branches to see a teller when all of us still used to go into branches. So that was the core piece of that work. And the goal, though, that I had was to step out and to have responsibility for profit and loss in its entirety, and that's what ANZ offered. And what was that role? It was to run the retail bank in South Australia and Northern Territory, so about a 1,000 people. And so that was my real big step out into a line role, and from there I went across to run retail banking in New Zealand with about 5,000 people. What was the difference in culture between something like an SO compared to the culture of the bank in those days? The, uh, I'd say the core difference was at the heart of an SO, and I'm an engineer, it's sort of that engineering professional approach to life was absolutely the heart and core of SO, whereas ANZ was typical of the other commercial banks and a lot of companies where it was much more operational in nature. It was interesting in terms of the people they had, ESO didn't have a lot of people and they could afford to have really had their pick up graduates and there was enormous focus on development, people development, whereas ANZ was a much larger organisation with much more breadth of the people in it. So it was much more about people in a deep people leadership role in terms of operational day-to-day performance. So what is your uh, heading or what is your summary of leadership? Because this is your first, as you say, P&L opportunity and I guess test of leadership. So I'm going to say I think the first thing leadership is about responsibility and it's absolutely being willing to say I'm responsible, I'm accountable And then it's a question, of course, well, what are you responsible for and accountable for? And all my experience is it's actually getting from A to B and it typically hasn't been really straightforward as to how you get from A to B. You stayed at banking for a number of years before, again, you made an interesting move. Can you talk us through what was the reason for the move? The second part of the question I'm going to ask you about is there's a lot of resistance in Australia, tending to be, 
of people who move from one sector to another, i.e. can you make the transformation, can you make the leap and be effective in that? What was your argument to that point? Sure. So let me start by saying why I chose to move from banking back into resources industrials. Even though I didn't want to be an engineer, I happen to love industrial resource organisations. They tend to be very straightforward and the fact that they produce a tangible product makes them, there's a directness about them. And I actually really enjoyed that. And what happened for me is that BHP still reached out to me and said, would you be interested interviewing with us? Because what we'd like to do is make BHP Steel a more market and customer oriented organisation. And so that was a bridge to what I had done in ANZ. Obviously, I was an engineer, but I'd also had this experience of how do you change an organisation and its culture to make it more market and customer oriented. So that was really the bridge for me. And my husband, who's been a great support in my career, asked me at the time if it was a very wise career move. And he asked me what I thought the odds of success were. And I said, oh, 50-50. So he thought it was rather a very risky proposition. I said, oh, Kev, I'll get another job. And if it doesn't work out, and that has been my advice to so many people over the years, guess what? You'll get another job. That's your mantra, is it? Yep. So you're very positive in the sense of I, you back yourself in that, in that sense? Absolutely. And expect to be successful. I mean, I'm not foolhardy, but I look at one of the saddest things I've seen in organisations are people who are sort of later on in their career and they're disappointed with how things have turned out and they become cynical and they can be a real drag on the organisation. I don't think anyone wants to get there. And so I've always been saying to people, give it a crack. Give it a shot and hopefully it will play out. But if it doesn't, there'll be other options. Catherine, but one of the key points, I guess, in the discussion in Australia at the moment is around gender. And one of the points around that again is that women don't necessarily back themselves enough. Is that something that you've seen a lot of? And and why do you think you break the mould in that sense? Yes. So first of all, I do think most of the women I know will agree that women are less likely to put their hand up than men are. We all see that in all sorts of situations, whether it's asking for a raise or for applying for a job. I have to reflect on why I'm like that. I just think I have a greater risk appetite than a lot of people. So was BHP successful for you? Yeah, it was great. I loved it. And in fact, I had the surprise of joining and almost three months afterwards, it was announced that BHP was merging with Billiton. And I rather thought, oh no, what have I done here? Because I had gone into BHP and there were other options like minerals and petroleum, particularly given I'd started my life as a petroleum engineer. But it turned out that going through divestment and a spin-out was incredibly interesting and was one of the real highlights of my career. And then I got the opportunity to run the Asian business for BHP Steel that became Blue Scope, and I just adored that experience, including living in Singapore. Talk us through the Asian experience. So for those people who don't know, BHP Steel Blue Scope was Australia's largest direct investor in pretty well every Asian country, from China through Southeast Asia into India. So it had a very important role that it played in the building its products business right through Asia. And it was really focused around the brands like Colourbond and Zincaloom that people in Australia will be familiar with. So very market-facing. And even though we had manufacturing facilities in all those markets in Asia, the market they were serving was their local market. It was not for export generally, and particularly not focused on exporting back to Australia. And it was all about developing markets for higher-end products. It was just so exciting 
being up there, the challenges, how quickly you were moving. While I was there, we commissioned plants in China and Vietnam and India and another coding line in Thailand. So there's just a lot happening and it's moving quickly and you're working to develop markets. Competitors are shifting. It just is, I, I don't know what the right multiple is. We always talk about dog years, but there's kind of Asian years. You just get so much more experience quickly up there. Is it the fact you've got to make decisions and there's a lot of autonomy or? Oh, well, I'm actually always going to say having a role, whether it's in Asia or New Zealand or in another state is always pretty appealing because you do get a greater degree of autonomy. And I think most people who aspire to leadership love that. But the amount of change that happens in Asia, it's so the development is so rapid. What about India? Oh, I love India. When I was appointed to the role, I was going to be the inaugural chair of Tata Blue Scope Steel based in India. And so I knew that when I took the role to head up Asia. And I was determined to love India because I don't think you can be chairman of a company, of a country, and not seek to have enormous sort of positive disposition to the country. And so before I went I read extensively and talked to people so I knew what I was going to be going into. I also understood some of the challenges of going to India and I don't think you can go to India and not be confronted by some of the circumstances there. But I found it a deeply enriching human experience spending time in India and I think you come out of India as a different person. I think any decent person who goes to India comes away a different person. So you've got now got that international exposure. So you commenced your career with ESO, you've gone to McKinsey's, you've gone to Banking of ANZ, you've gone to BHP, then Blue Scope, then covering India, recovering Asia, and then you decide to go to a, a family organisation. As I was finishing with Blue Scope Steel in Singapore, it was exactly the right time to come back to Melbourne for family reasons, to do with, in fact, both my husband and I have fathers who are in Melbourne and it was getting to the point it was important that we were around and so in fact I was between roles and Lynn Fox was I think it's fair to say they were keen for me to join they knew me very well because logistics used to report through to me at Blue Scope and so I'd had a lot of exposure and they wanted to bring someone in who had big corporate experience but who could turn around their most important logistics business unit as well. And how did you find the transition from you know, the listed environment to the family-run environment where it's fairly direct communication. Very direct communication, no holds barred. It was a fantastic experience for me. I learned a lot. Just seeing the world in a different way is really powerful and seeing what are the key values in the different sectors. And there's some really positive attributes to family businesses, I'm going to say. They tend to have a very long time frame in mind. They'll talk about the future for our grandchildren. Well, that's a joy to be able to have sort of that strategic framework. People are so connected to the business. There's no question that there's a real heart to family businesses. There are challenges as well. There are quirks, it's fair to say, and I think most people would understand there are quirks. But I found it a really good experience, particularly at that point in my career where by that point I think I'd been working 25 years or so. So I had real depth of experience starting at SO Exxon, which was the world's most valuable company. So that's where I started. So I had that in spades in terms of that deep, multinational, very professional approach to work. And when did you come to the decision it's time to move out of executive life into the NED? So that transition happened to me when I was about 51 to 52, and it was much earlier than I expected and not something I intended to do. 
And the reason it happened is I went through cancer treatment. I had breast cancer, a particularly aggressive form of breast cancer, inflammatory breast cancer. And after I'd gone through that treatment, it was just obvious that I didn't have the crazy stamina that I used to have, particularly working in Asia, where I would do those overnight flights between Australia and Asia, go straight to work and cope fine with that. It became pretty obvious that I just did not have that crazy stamina anymore. And therefore, when non-executive director roles started becoming a possibility for me, that's where I ended up going. Although I joined the Reserve Bank Board with the expectation I'd be going to an executive role, but it turned out I did not do that. I ended up picking up a portfolio of non-executive director roles. I guess on a personal thing, Catherine, where where did the cancer change your perspective in, in life and values? It's really interesting question because I get asked that a lot. And at the time, I would say, no, it didn't, because I know what's important in life is relationships and I didn't need to go through cancer to reaffirm that what's important in life is relationships. So it didn't affect me like that, but it has affected me in many ways. I'm going to say I am more quesarasara, whatever will be, will be. I'm much more in that mode, but you do make choices like I choose to work on things that I think are really important and only with people I really enjoy working with. And so my view of what's important in life hasn't changed. I guess I'm just much clearer about that's what I will do. Now you're in the case Sarah Sarah mode. How have you found the transition from being the executive in charge, calling the shots, to standing back, participating as a chair as well, we can talk through that in a second, and as an NED on numerous boards? I found it challenging. And that was even though since about my mid to late 30s, I'd been on board roles with one board role as an adjunct to my executive career. And I found, and I still say to people, taking on a board role was the best executive development program I ever pursued because you just learn so much from sitting on the other side of the table. So I had quite a lot of experience of having been a board director. It's very different though to that becoming your sort of full-time job and that challenge of actually accepting all you can do is ask questions look to provide guidance but you cannot take responsibility and pick up and run with things and that's really challenging because for those of us who love executive work that's the joy you're accountable you're responsible you're building a team you're working together there's all of that energy and enthusiasm from doing that. And so it's a very different role. And I had to find other ways of saying, well, how do I get all sorts of things, whether it's how do I find a team, because boards aren't really a regular team because you don't meet often enough. What do I get involved in that I can be more involved so I still get the satisfaction very directly of me doing something and directly getting outcomes from that. So I had to find other ways of getting some of the joys of executive work. What are your thoughts in regards to if I sat in front of most chief executives one-on-one, they would push back and say that the overemphasis on corporate governance and risk is stifling potential growth opportunities as a, as a CEO. That's what they would say. I know you're shaking your head. Um, there'd be some frustration on their behalf. Do you think the weighting has gone the wrong way or is it now more so since the the release of the Hain Report and the Royal Commission? Yeah, and the end April last year. Yeah. In, on the boards I'm on, 
I don't think there has been a really significant shift in the amount of time that we do. We, of course, did like expect every good board would do, which is saying, well, what are the findings? How do they relate to what we do, even though we're not in financial services? So we've certainly put the time in there. But I'm going to say that we are always very conscious and pushing to say, where do we want to be in five years' time and longer? And so strategically, that's still really important to us and which all the boards I'm on. So I absolutely hear what you're saying, Greg, about CEOs saying that to you. And there's the argument around sort of the fear of failure, concern with personal reputation comes up. And and it comes up in different angles, as we know, but more so are we getting more of it now because of the, the focus as a result? Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt that non-executive directors are aware of a higher level of risk and reputational risk as a result of the various inquiries that have been done. And I know I've always said to people, if you're thinking about coming a non-executive director, you have to be able to be able to walk away from it. Don't put yourself in, in a position where you can't walk away if you need to. And so I definitely do think it has made people much more aware of the risk involved. As a chair, you obviously understand composition of boardrooms. You've had a, a career which had PL exposure. Yes. Is there enough backgrounds in the boardroom of people with PL exposure to support the business in, like, you know, opportunities offshore, acquisitions, et cetera? My experience being on boards is that, in fact, the first people you typically want to make sure you have around the table are executives who have experience in the industry or very closely related industry. And you're particularly looking at for people who have had CEO or big business unit division roles and CFOs. And so I would expect typically that the mix of people on the board would be at least 50-50 between those sorts of people and then other roles, if not more than 50. In fact, it's probably more than 50-50 will be people who've had executive both on the business and finance side. And what about international mindset? I'm thinking of Boral and you've got a chief exec, Mike Kane is from from the US. The reality of the companies I'm involved in is we have big exposures internationally. So in both well, Boral is almost half our revenue now is in, in North America. We've obviously big in Australia and we're significant joint venture in Asia. And so it's not surprising that we're looking to have board directors from those three regions. We brought on a American-based non-executive director last year out of the US and we've been very public in saying we're looking for people with Asian experience as well. So your definition of diversity is what? Oh, a breadth of experiences, but also intrinsically a breadth of different ways of looking at the world and approaches and knowledge base. So all of that, the thing you desperately want is people bringing both experience and different lenses to problems. And how difficult was it to make the call on the uh, the acquisition in the US? It was a big call, very big call in terms of the size of the acquisition. But we had a really fundamental question that we needed to address, which was given the size of the business we had in the US, we had two options, I believe. One was to get significantly bigger or alternatively, really, it was going to make sense for us to get out. And I'm going to say for us, and I think for quite a number of other Australian companies, being in North America is pretty compelling if you can find a way to do that that is value enhancing. And we had the opportunity to do the acquisition of headwaters where there was incredible overlap between our business and their business in terms of the sectors 
It was all building products and construction products, but even in terms of overlap, in terms of the biggest business they had was a fly ash business, similarly for us. So putting those businesses together presented a very compelling picture. Where is the state of manufacturing then in Australia, Catherine? Now you've got the Blue Scope experience, you've got the Boral experience, and are we going to see the likes of Boral ultimately move to the United States as head office, or what do you see in the next five, ten years? It's certainly not on our radar screen. There's no compelling reason at all that we would be looking at doing that. The thing that I see is that Australian companies, if we're involved in manufacturing, either it's going to be because we have a very strong domestic position, which makes sense, and certainly supply chains are a lot easier if they're domestic rather than having to sort of add a lot of time and complexity to the supply chains, or if you have, I'm going to say, a particular niche product, which means it absolutely makes sense to export. But is it getting more difficult to do business in Australia? If you look at your organisation, the cost of energy, the cost of labour, high levels of tax, what's what's your thoughts there? Certainly the cost of energy has been a concern for companies. Even the availability of gas has become an issue, as many people are, are talking about, and has been real for some of the businesses I'm in. There will continue to be a transition away from some of our traditional activity, and that's going to really come when companies are looking at needing to spend a lot of capital, say a major turnaround or all the like. So that's when those questions will be real and you'll see people sometimes choosing this is the time to move away. Other times they'll say, no, it makes sense for us to stay local. I think that's just the way the evolution of industry happens. I mean, I always talk to people about how 100 years ago about a quarter of people were employed in agriculture. That's inconceivable now because guess what? Farming has become way more efficient and it's done in different places and we bring product in and that's inevitable and, and manufacturing is similarly shifting what it looks like. But there's certainly very good examples of very successful manufacturers in Australia. So in regards to manufacturing in Australia and all technology slash innovation, where, where are Boral investing? Our Boral is investing. We do multiple things on the R&D front and certainly do it from base materials all the way through to digital development in terms of customer service. So we're all along that spectrum of where do you spend money to continue to innovate, whether that's for new products or for a different way of doing things. And as a director of the board, how do you keep yourself educated in regards to new thinking around AI, digital, et cetera? You do it both within the business and making sure you know what's going on and what competitors are doing and very importantly of course in the digital space people who you don't even sort of think about as competitors and where those changes might come through so you spend a lot of time in the business doing that in fact at the board of Boral, we recently spend half a day with our digital team not a normal board meeting but just let's really understand this and what's going on I'm very involved personally in the Academy of Technology and Engineering, which is one of our learned academies. So that keeps me in touch there. I've also just late last year joined the board of CSIRO. And I have to say, if you really want to know what's happening in technology and data technology, being on the board of CSIRO is a pretty good place to be. So I consciously, and I see my other colleagues who've particularly got a technology being, making sure they're engaged in technologically intensive businesses or organisations. And as a country, do you think there's enough focus on R&D or are we just a great importer? One of the big challenges for Australia is to get more effective in R&D and that includes getting better linkages between our universities and industry. That's one of the big things we need to do. I 
know that there's sensitivity talking about innovation in Australia because people can see that it translates into job losses. Mm -hmm. Of course, what you're desperately trying to do is actually have innovation so you, that you have more jobs and more better jobs, I'm going to say. There is a chronic shortage of engineers in Australia, for example, and that's because, guess what? Everyone is looking to say, how do we get better at data science? So it is a challenge for Australia and I wish we could have more public discussion about it, but it's actually it turned out to be politically tricky in Australia to have some of that discussion. So is business putting the voice forward enough, do you think? Because as you say, it has to be debated. These people's jobs, these people's futures, and there is a fear factor behind that. Yes, I think we're getting much better at knowing how to talk about it and show what we're doing because I think, in fact, once you start showing what you're doing, that people go, oh, I get what this is about and I can see the changes that are being made. You've also expressed concern that the lack of females in executive roles in Australia. What needs to change and what numbers would you hope to see in the next five to ten years? What would be satisfactory? Okay, so I'm a big believer in the importance of women in executive roles because I'm going to say for the simple reason, for those of us who've been executives, they and now even when you're on a board, you know that it's those senior executive roles, CEO roles, C-suite roles, senior roles beneath that. They're the roles that have by far the most influence in organisations. And I'm going to say most of us who've had those roles have really loved those roles. They're great roles to have. They're demanding. You have a lot of responsibility, but on the other hand, there's a high level of satisfaction in taking on that responsibility. So currently the numbers are we have CEOs in the ASX 200, 7% of women, CFOs now up to 12%. Line roles are probably in about the 12 to 15% mark. I would hope we'd get to the 30% mark. So we really have a critical mass of women in those roles. So people just see it as more normal. Why do I think this is important? couple of reasons. First of all, we know companies that are more diverse, guess what, have better performance. And on the other hand, I go, it's such a waste as a nation that Australia ranks one in terms of the educational attainment of girls in the world. We'll stop. Guess what? We do a really, really good job of educating girls all the way through high school and into university. What does that mean? Guess what happens then? We don't do a good job of translating all that knowledge and capability into the workforce and roles of influence in the community. And that's wasteful. And so how do we deal with it? I think it's very straightforward. It's about leadership here and people deciding this is important because we know if leaders take it on that they make significant change and change can definitely happen in that five to 10 year mark. You mentioned the number 30%. By what time? Oh, I would say in the next 10 years. So 2030 is a lovely time frame for us to be walking to. Okay. So by 2030, we're after 30%. Of not just women in executive roles, but in what we call line roles, so the big P&L roles, finance roles and the like, which is sort of the stepping stone up to the CEO. Because in fact, the numbers, if we look at last year, of those appointed to CEO, 80% came out of those big line divisional roles and about another 10% out of CFOs. Catherine, last year there was also commentary that um, there was a bit of resistance. Is that your feeling? Oh, I think it was very clear last year that there was a real backlash against women in senior roles, particularly board roles was the focus of that discussion. And there were a lot of people who were vocal about it. I was very worried. And I think a lot of women were very worried that we might go backwards after the progress we've made in the last decade. And however, as it played out, 
what was really positive to see was the number of senior men who said, no, actually, and lovely line from Tom MBZ, who's the chairman of Deloitte's, this ship has sailed. And sort of the recognition that, in fact, having more diversity on the gender front is actually good for organisations. And I think that's very helpful. And I was very pleased when I spoke to one of the leading proxy advisors who said, they were seeing companies who were committed to greater diversity and inclusion doubling down as a result of the backlash. Catherine, I understand there's the discussion around gender, which comes up, which quite frankly seems to dominate the discussion around diversity. Have we lost emphasis on the broader concept you talked about earlier, saying having people from offshore, different experiences, like your background yourself is all full of different experiences. Quite often we only hear, the, in, particularly in the press, gender, gender, gender. Is that part of the reason why there was a backlash? I think the reason the backlash was there was that fundamentally we're talking about change and you never have significant social change without some backlash. So the fact we had backlash was not unexpected. It was particularly, I'm going to use the word nasty last year, which is perhaps a strong word, but it was very personalised and very inappropriate. So I certainly am a great believer that we need all sorts of diversity, including people of different heritage certainly different perspectives and the like. However, I also look at when we're talking about gender, we're talking about 50% of the population. And it's like, in fact, if you're not worried about that, then you question, are you serious or not? And my experience is if you focus on inclusion, which is what most people do, by looking at gender, you tend to know, therefore, how do you increase diversity more generally? And the reality is any program that is about increasing inclusion will capture a lot of people. Okay, so and you're talking inclusion, you're talking in some cases, um, if you broaden that argument, experimentation as a, as a culture in an organisation and willingness to accept change. Do you think Australians are great at doing that or do you think we're actually very conservative? We're not known for being risk-taking <laughs> in this part of the world compared to the US. Maybe, although I started my working life at SO Australia Exxon and it was actually really government that really forced a lot of the change starting in the multinationals. So I think as human beings, we tend to be, I don't think it matters which nationality we are, on average, we tend to be somewhat risk averse. So I don't think that's a surprise. Do I think Australia has maybe needed a bigger shove than some other places? Yeah, probably. But what needs to happen is very similar. In regards to creating the, the culture, can you talk us through how do you do that? Because when, when you, okay, you put forward the numbers, you put forward the timeline, then there's the thing is, then there's the execution. I'm a big believer is by far the most important question that a board has to answer or if we look from externally is who is the CEO? And if you want to bring about change and cultural change, the CEO has to absolutely lead it. Otherwise, your whole organisation will not give it any credibility at all. And therefore, you as a board, as we all say, by far the most important decision we make is who is the CEO. And it doesn't matter what area it is. Here we're talking about culture. If we want a change of culture, it has to start there. Because, in fact, one of the most important things that a CEO will do is that their decision about which appointments they'll make. And there is nothing as powerful as looking at the top team. Can you talk me through the, the, the relationship between CEO and chair? How does it work? So you need to have a very open, respectful and trusting relationship between the chair and CEO, CEO and chair, where you both have a lot of respect for each other's roles because they are distinctly different roles and responsibilities, but it has to be one of absolute confidence in that it will be open and honest. 
Catherine, what do you do if the CEO doesn't pick up on your tips about creating that culture? If someone didn't pick up on my tips, I guess I'd shift them from tips to a firmer discussion about a viewpoint particularly. And I'm always very conscious that it's not just about what I think. It's like what the whole board thinks. And that tends to be fairly compelling if a whole board sees an issue a particular way and experienced CEOs, just like experienced chairs, will know that there is always give and take on issues and certainly which battles to fight and which not to fight. But in the end, if it's really important, you have to have genuine alignment. It can't just be neither party can just be saying agreeing and not really believing and following through on it. I'm going to take you back all those years ago when you are in banking and you talked about the key role of understanding customers. Uh, you've got organic growth and inorganic growth. If we look at organic growth in Australia, it's hard to get. Do you think most businesses in Australia fully appreciate? We hear about understanding the customer. It's almost a cliche. Why don't we understand the customer? If you're a big organisation, it can be challenging to make sure you've got alignment between what customers really want and how the operations of an organisation work, including all the systems that support it. And you have to work very hard on making sure those are tied together. But then the real challenge of making sure you deliver every day on what you mean to do. And that can sound very straightforward, but in most of the businesses I've been in, just delivering day in, day out on what you set out to do requires enormous effort and commitment and attention. Are there any particular organisations that you looked at or maybe used as a model or as a benchmark when you discuss in the boardroom, this is where we'd like to get to? Oh, I guess over the years, the company that I've alluded to, because I think they're extraordinary, is Singapore Airlines. And for those of us who've spent a lot of time in Asia, we typically have had a lot of exposure to Singapore Airlines and just their consistency is exemplary. In terms of sort of saying a system of customer service that works, Singapore has to be experienced to be believed. In fact, one of my very favourite stories about Singapore Airlines is a friend of a friend, actually, who was a very significant Singapore Airlines customer. And the person was invited to one of those cocktail parties where they're recognised as a leading customer and was asked, well, is there anything we can do to make a difference? And the response was, no, it's terrific. Just do what you're already doing. Oh, there must be something we could do. And so the response was, oh, maybe you could have a better sense of humour. Well, needless to say, that person therefore got greeted with a joke (laughs) every time that person hopped on a flight, which is just a beautiful example to my mind of capturing a customer preference. It's a lovely story, and so I don't want to take it too far, but it is an example of how organisations who are really focused on, on customers actually translate what they hear into what they do. Can I ask you something around exposure to the executives to the boardroom? Now, some boards have a monthly discussion and invite all execs. Some do not. What's been your experience? I've actually had a real difference in experience here between corporate boards and not-for-profit boards. And my experience is corporate boards, I don't think on any of the corporate boards, all the execs have sat around the board table, whereas that's actually more common on a not-for-profit board. Whichever it is, there absolutely have to be times when the board alone is meeting um, and that at times includes excluding the CEO and I couldn't imagine it in a a corporate commercial board you'd have all the execs there maybe other people have had that experience I know on not-for-profits I've managed it carefully it's actually makes it easier more open and transparent for 
in the not-for-profits for people to be there, but carving out plenty of time to have the direct conversations as well when they're needed, which is sometimes necessary. You mentioned uh, Singapore Airlines. That was a success because it's also very much supported by the government. Do you think there's enough business discussion or enough relationship with Australian government, both uh, state and federal? My experience is that certainly the companies I've been involved with have always had a fairly active engagement with government in different ways. But if we just read the newspapers, I think there is a real issue with the way business is perceived in Australia and certainly the Business Council of Australia has talked about that. I actually think that engagement is really important, but I actually think by far the most important thing we can do is play the role that we're meant to have in the community and the economy, which is to deliver products and services that are absolutely valued by customers, that we act in the best interests as well, being mindful of the communities that we're operating in and certainly with our people and that we deliver a satisfactory and good return to investors as well. It's interesting for me, having been involved in industrial companies for the last couple of decades, we are used to talking about the social licence to operate. That's really familiar to us. And safety is our number one priority. I'm sure you find that too with industrial companies. That's where you start and then you drop down to other aspects of the business. So that's very familiar territory, but I do think we have a big challenge to show that having successful business sector is critically important to a nation so that you're growing the economic well-being, which allows us all to grow social well-being of the community as well. There's that element, I guess, of trust has been lost a little bit of late. I guess one part is restoring it. The second part you're mentoring there is all about leadership. Why do I aspire to be an Australian leader? Because if we look at newspapers, if you're a chief exec or a chair, um, you are certainly targeted personally, as opposed to sometimes not necessarily going for the strategy. And I'm wondering how you, what your thoughts are on that. It makes it difficult to put your hand up to be a senior person if you're going to be sometimes targeted personally, as opposed to attacking my strategy. Right. Well, I think it depends a little bit on what drives us personally. And I started by saying I like problem solving and want to make a difference. So if that's important to you, I think you're going to say one of the consequences of that is you're going to be willing to go out there and take some risk. So it depends on your mindset. I also think it's helpful when you have enough experience to recognise that most of what is said is not about you personally and that it's, guess what, we all know that the media is going to find a story about conflict far more interesting than something that's just, a, you know, sort of ho-hum. And I think it's very helpful to recognise, okay, that's what's going to happen. I think having a healthy media is incredibly important to our society. I think we should all want that and wish for that and that... I know I'm very respectful of the media and the role it plays. And my experience as always is if you're respectful and treat people in an appropriate way, people will similarly be respectful, even if they might be critical of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Catherine, you live a pretty busy life and have throughout your career. When have you actually taken the time to think strategically? How do you do it? I find that I think strategically in those wonderful moments, either in the shower, which is also a wonderful place for most people, but I'm a big walker and a lot of my best ideas will come while I'm walking the dog and dog and I have discussions. And then another place where I'm very creative 
is on long plane trips. I love long plane trips. I'm one of those people who nearly always gets off a long plane trip with some really interesting ideas, creative ideas. And often if I'm listening to music, I'll come up with really creative ideas as well. So I know I'm one of those people who has to have my brain in a different space to come up with really good ideas and sitting in the front of a desk or in front of a screen is not when I come up with my best ideas. So I build that activity into everyday life and certainly during the week. What's the next few years going to look for you? Look forward to you, Catherine. In terms of the next few years, I feel as though right now, touch wood, I've kind of in a, a good spot with having a really interesting portfolio of roles that I have and activities that I have. And I have the joy of my husband and I have one son, one child, and he's at uni and he's very happy and he's moved out of home. So it's that lovely feeling that we have moved to that sort of enjoying having a young adult as the other person in our family. So it's a good place to be right now. So if you were to look back as young Catherine going to ESO, what advice would you give her all these years later? If I look back, I really would have been trying to tell my young self not to worry so much that it would all be okay. And I was one of those people who didn't have a lot of confidence when I started my career. And in hindsight, I didn't need to go through as much grief as I did, but maybe I wouldn't have had the career I did without having felt like that at the time. So, you know, a lot of the message is it's going to be okay. Catherine, thanks for sharing such a fascinating career. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs>